All rise. The Honorables, the Presiding Judge and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good morning and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Richard Dietz and joining me on the panel this morning are my colleagues, Judge Allegra Collins and Judge Jeff Carpenter. We're also joined in the courtroom today by Clerk Roderick McFarland and Deputy Marshal Richard Remillard. Thank you both for being here. And there's one case on the calendar this morning. That's number 22293, Autry versus Bill Clark Holmes. We confirm the parties are ready to proceed, so we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Kyle Nutt. I am the attorney for the plaintiffs and appellants. Uh, and I just want to start by saying it's always an honor to be here and uh, to know that this court um, finds this case interesting enough to hold oral arguments, and we appreciate that. Um, I want to start by saying your decision in this case really boils down to one maxim. Can a party benefit themselves by breaking the law? If you find that they can't, then all of the defenses they're raising and their contention that they owe no duty falls away because everything they did to escape liability in this case arises from their violation of laws. I'll start by talking about the creation of the duty in this case, since that's the crux of the issue at summary judgment. I'll then talk about the purpose of the regulatory statutes as has been asserted by the defendants, uh, appellees. I'll then talk about the statute of repose issue they raised and then uh, finish with punitive damages. With respect uh, to rebuttal time, I would like to reserve five minutes. In North Carolina, our courts have long held that a duty can be created in two ways, by statute or ordinance or by the common law. The stormwater regulations in this case have the force of law. They were promulgated pursuant to statute. That body was empowered to issue these regulations to control stormwater runoff and all of the effects of that as part of a statute that embraces within it the concept of protection of public safety and property. There's an operation and maintenance plan signed by the, uh, I'm sorry, there is an operation and maintenance plan that is required to be signed by the party who is going to be responsible for the stormwater system in order to obtain a permit. In this case, the defendants never got that operation and maintenance plan signed by the responsible party. They attempted to foist that responsibility onto a homeowners association that did not exist at the time they applied for their permit. And what the state decided was, and this is marked in their permit file, they were aware of this, you cannot bind an unformed HOA to take care of a system when they don't exist yet. And so you as the permit holder defendants are responsible for maintenance and the operation of this stormwater system until your permit until your permit is transferred. So part of the regulations include a um, requirement that any modification to this system must be approved by, at that time it was Diener, we now call them DEQ, and my apologies if I use those two um, acronyms interchangeably. 
but you can't change your system without the engineering folks at the state blessing that. So in 2000 and in years leading up to that, this developer had numerous complaints of severe flooding in this neighborhood that they are building out over the course of many years. Two and a half feet of water in the street. It's well documented. There's no question they were on notice of what was going on in the neighborhood they were building for North Carolina families. And we are talking humble homes here. These are salt of the earth people, sheriff's deputy, um, a, a factory worker at GE, a retiree who made clocks. None of these properties were in a flood zone. None of these people had flood insurance. In 2000, as a result of all of these complaints of flooding, including what eventually became a member of our state legislature getting involved, the state came down on the defendants and issued a notice of violation and said, essentially, we've had complaints of flooding, we've looked at the situation, and it's clear that you underreported to us the amount of off-site drainage that's coming into this neighborhood when you design the system, grossly. So the, the ultimatum they were given by the state was, as required by the rules, off-site runoff must either be routed around the system or accounted for in the design of the pond. Choose your option and submit a revised application. Two choices, build a bigger pond or route it around. After several requests to delay, the defendants submitted through their engineer, who was their designated agent, a plan to the state to route the water around their system. And as testified to by Alita Lewis, who goes by Linda, a longtime career state employee, a stormwater engineer who was intimately involved in this file and was the person regulating these defendants. Those plans showed this bypass piping that, that the defendants proposed to install, stopping at the edge of the neighborhood property. Now that is so critical because the regulations at the time, this is both in the administrative code and it was testified to by Alita Lewis, required any provision or any portion of your system, your stormwater system, that's going to be outside of the neighborhood you're developing, it falls into a different category called an off-site system. And at that point, you have to obtain recorded access easements for maintenance in favor of the party who's going to be responsible for maintaining that off-site portion. In other words, if you're going to put a pipe on somebody else's property, you got to have their permission, you got to have a deed to get on the property and to address the maintenance obligations that are part of not only the um, written agreement that you have to have with the state to get your permit, but they are also part of the administrative code, your maintenance obligations. They didn't do that. They told the state, we're stopping this pipe in the neighborhood. There's two critical documents here that kind of play into the rest of what happened after the fact. Let, let me ask you a question because I, I think what we're going to hear from your uh, friend for the defendant is that so the trial court, I think, made a ruling that was based on duty. Yes, sir. And so the, um, I think what they're going to, well, let me start with a preliminary question, which is the property where the, um, the part of the stormwater system that you say is not functioning properly, it wasn't maintained, who owns that property? That's a good question. Um, the expert 
hired by the defense said it's a co corporation that has been defunct for over eight years before the flooding even occurred. So what their expert said is he did a title search and he said, big tract of land, developer sells off two pieces of it, never actually sold this narrow sliver that runs between the two where this creek was. So that company dissolved. They were long gone by the time any issues came. And are you arguing the defendants own that property? I am arguing that by placing a pipe on someone else's property without permission, right. they took on responsibility for it. As, right, but as, you can tell where I'm going here, which I think your friend for the defendant is going to say, in, in North Carolina, at common law, there is a duty in a scenario like this, and it falls on the property owner. I believe, and, I believe what their brief states and the case law supports is it is typically the duty of the landowner unless the equities don't favor that situation. Well, so then I think they'll say on top of that, we have law that we can draw a duty from, which is the law that comes from the local government that's responsible for managing floodwaters and things like that and stormwater generally. And that when you combine those two, there is a clear duty on whoever owns that property to address it. And typically in negligence law, when we have a scenario like that, if the property owner who's responsible for this would say, yes, but there's somebody else who did this to my property and through some other principle of law, could be contract, could be a statute, has an obligation to maintain something. Then I'm legally responsible for my property, but I have my own claim. I can bring a cross claim against this other party or I can seek indemnification. But the duty doesn't pass to that other person. It stays with me as the property owner. So, and I think we're gonna hear that argument sure. that, that really what's going on here is the you haven't identified the party that you, that's not judgment-proof that you can pursue as a landowner who didn't maintain this. And so what, what's your response to that, which seems to me to be the core issue here? My response to that is, and I'm, that question dovetails into exactly where I was going, the, de the defendants in this case signed a certification to the state that said, we are going to build this pipe as built in, or as proposed in our plans. It's going to stop. And I personally, the president of that company, I personally take responsibility to ensure it stops there. He also took personal responsibility in a uh, wet detention supplement to maintain all of the orifices, pipe openings, inspect them quarterly. What Alita Lewis testified to is had they followed their regulations and said, hey, state, we actually want to extend this pipe onto this property, the law would have required them to put in place this easement in an operation and maintenance plan for that pipe orifice. So they broke the law. They didn't do what the statute, what the regulations required them to do. And my point is this, Judge, this is why I opened this way. Had they followed the law, there would have been an operation and maintenance agreement in place that made them or some designee of theirs responsible for maintenance of the pipe. So their position in this case is, by breaking the law, we absolved ourselves of responsibility. By trespassing on our neighbor's property in the middle of the woods without notice or permission and dropping a 36-inch pipe that's handling stormwater runoff from 1,000 acres, we successfully avoided which the, that which the law would have otherwise imposed upon us. We cheated to win. So my question is, if, if the law would have imposed upon them a duty, would that duty have been for the benefit of the landowner? Or would that duty have extended beyond the benefit of the landowner now to the neighboring parties? 
the duty is for the benefit of the homeowners in the community that the developer is building because the duty is geared towards taking responsibility for the stormwater facilities that serve that neighborhood. And that duty would have been in whatever paperwork they would have signed? Absolutely. Operation and maintenance plan is square one for every improvement to a stormwater system under the North Carolina Administrative Code that applied to these improvements. So suppose it turned out that this land is actually owned by some billionaire that lives on a private island. Uh, would your clients have a negligence claim against the property owner in your view? I think that'd be very difficult because the, um, the statute of repose says that they have to have reason to know of a responsibility to maintain. And again, this was a pipe installed on their property back in uh, 2003. So there is certainly a bald theory that would say you're the landowner under local ordinance, you should be responsible for it. But I think we are all well aware that they would step into that situation and say we're not responsible because we never got notice, we never gave permission, and this was nothing we ever agreed to undertake. I what think I'm trying to figure out is if they would, that would be a defense to their own legal obligations or if that would be a claim that the landowner has against uh, you know, the defendants here. And the difference being that in that scenario, we might not extend the duty that you say exists sure. so, to your clients. You know, that, that's a duty owed. It was, it's only a duty owed to the landowner. So, so the statute of repose would say, uh, this is NCGS 1-50, and I believe it's Part D, which is the, this is the six-year statute of repose they're arguing applies to them. And, and subsection D says, if we're talking about a maintenance obligation on some piece of property that you either own or control, and it, and it, it gives you very broad definition of control. It says, as owner, tenant, or otherwise. So I would argue if you've got enough control to go on their property and construct a 30-foot-long, 36-inch pipe in the bottom of a swale, you have some control over that property, whether that's legitimate or not. That statute of repose section, though, says the only way that you are not held to this statute of repose under a maintenance obligation is in the event such person in actual possession or control either knew or ought reasonably to have known of the defective and unsafe condition. And so your billionaire is going to say, no one ever contacted me and said, hey, let me build a 30-foot, 36-inch pipe on this narrow sliver of land buried down south in New Hanover County. And had they done that, I would have known. But without any notice from anyone, their point is going to be, do I have a duty to physically walk every square inch of my property and detect if my neighbor planted a landmine on my property? Am I now responsible for that because he didn't tell me, but somebody just happened to blow up on it? Of course not. So it's a defense of the statute of repose that they have that unequivocally, in my opinion, would have barred them because they would have, the first thing that they would have done is stepped into court and say, no notice, no permission, no agreement. It's a trespass. Is the, is the statute of repose say anything about what duties exist, either at common law or through statutes? I mean, isn't, aren't those two separate, you know, kind of law? In other words, the, the question that we're looking at is, would there be a duty? Because if there is one, then the duty that you're arguing here, I think this is what the trial court was reasoning, might flow to the landowner, but that applying that duty to 
these outside parties like your client is just a step too far because the, what the law will do is impose on, a, on each property owner an obligation to address these sorts of issues. And then well, in that, from that judgment beyond, who needs to pay after that is something that gets litigated. And we're only here because that party may be judgment proof in this case. I, I, don't, I don't respectfully think that that's what the law says. I think what the law says is typically the landowner is responsible for the water features on their property. But it does have a caveat to that that basically says in situations or circumstances where the equities would dictate otherwise, it, it, there can be an exception to that. So what better example is there when a party without permission in violation of the law goes on their neighbor's property and attempts to foist a duty upon them? That is the equities here. That's the exception to the normal standards. And what I would also say, Your Honor, is they keep citing to the local ordinance as if that's mutually exclusive with any other provision of law. It's clearly not. I mean, common law says everybody who embarks on a course of conduct has an obligation to do so with reasonable attention to safety, thinking about the, those others in the public that are impacted. So in this case, the course of conduct they embarked on was attempting to abate a flooding situation they created. So what about and your argument, for your friend for the defendants, that uh, this duty, assuming there is one, isn't about preventing flooding, that it has a very, what's imposed by these regulations is a narrower right. duty to deal with pollutants and other the sorts of things that DEQ is typically addressing, and so that the duty I, doesn't extend to something like I that. I respond that with a rhetorical question. The duty to maintain is undeniable. They don't deny they had a duty to maintain this system. What they deny is that a proximate, a clear proximate result of their failure of that duty can render them liable because technically this is about water pollution and not about flooding. The rhetorical question I respond to that with is, so if you're not maintaining that system and a sinkhole happens, which it did in this case, and a child falls in it and dies, are you excused from that liability because this is a pollution statute? Of course not. Your Honor, we are talking about massive earthworks, massive construction projects. Engineers are involved. Public safety is part of the project of construction, design, implementation, and maintenance is part of that. But your, your hypothetical actually gets to the, I think, what I'm struggling with in this case, which is because in the scenario, in that hypothetical, if a sinkhole suddenly formed in someone's property and a child was, you know, fell inside and tragically died, the, you would look to the property owner for legal responsibility. And if the property owner then said, well, but the dangerous condition on my property was created because some other party had some obligations to me that they didn't fulfill on my land, and so I can seek from them some kind of indemnification. But why would we put the, why does that mean that there must be some duty that extends from be, someone like the defendants here to be, your be, clients? Because the defendants undertook an express obligation to the state to maintain the system. They are the party by law responsible for maintaining it, regardless of whether it's on neighbor one or neighbor two's property. They said to the state, we promise if you let us build this, we will maintain it. They cannot then step away and say, well, but local ordinance says if it's in your yard, you've got to fix it. 
So just so I understand, it's not, it's not necessarily a common law duty that you're looking at. It's what would have been in the maintenance plan that they said to the state that we will do had they not surreptitiously gone on the property. It's a combination of that. That is part of it. That's where I say you cannot benefit yourself by breaking the law. The other part of it is just the custom that both uh, the engineer's uh, trip, field trip, and John Oglesby testified to, which is in our business and development, if you build it, you maintain it, or you have an agreement in place for some other party too. If that's another landowner, then you have to have a maintenance agreement in place with them. They said that is the custom that was testified to by two experts. And custom, as I cited in the brief, is absolutely evidence of duty. It is evidence from which the court can draw a duty. It's not dispositive. And this goes to, I want to, in my few minutes I have left, I want to address the case that, that they're citing for this proposition, Your Honor, because I think it's grossly misguided. They're citing the Cowan case for this proposition that, well, if it's a, if it's a statute aimed at pollution, you can't use it to control flooding. Cowan does not hold that in any factually cognizable regard. What Cowan was about was negligence per se and whether failing to honk when passing a car on the road constitutes negligence per se or given the statute said by uh, express um, legislative amendment that it did not, whether the court there, the trial court, had erred in telling the jury about this statute but not telling the jury that it doesn't constitute negligence per se. And what the court there said was, well, if a statute is violated, that's it. That's negligence per se. It doesn't matter how careful you were otherwise, what other grand uh, ideas and means you went through to try to protect public safety. If you broke the law, it's negligence per se, you're liable. But where the statute specifically says it's not negligence per se, then it is evidence of a duty. It's much like custom. So they said it's just a factor that the jury got to weigh like everything else. That is exactly what we have here. We have a statute that doesn't say on it, thou shalt do this or, or you will be liable to landowners or uh, property owners who get flooded. What it says is you have a duty to do this. If it is not negligence per se, then it is much like the Cowan case. It is evidence of the duty that they have uh, to protect those people that, that is part of the consideration the jury may take. It is not dispositive if it's not negligence per se. That's what Cowan stood for. And nowhere do they cite any case in North Carolina history, we've got over 200 years of jurisprudential history, they cannot cite to you a single case where this court or the North Carolina Supreme Court ever said, well, I know you technically violated the law, but that law is actually not intended to protect that person or in that way, uh, so we're going to let you off the hook. That's not cited anywhere. That case doesn't exist. They would have shown you it if it did. What Cowan stands for is proximate cause and negligence per se versus using a statute as evidence of a duty that the jury gets to consider. Um, I would also well, like to last just... Last question I want to have, because I know we're... I don't want to eat into your rebuttal time, but getting back to the point you made, so um, if it's the statute that's uh, creating some duty, or if it's envir these environmental regulations are creating the duty, and if 
um, I heard you refer to it as sort of like a, you know, they, they shouldn't be allowed to break the law and then not, but if you need to, um, ex to comply with those things in order to trigger the duty, even if it's because you broke the law, you never took the steps to create the duty, does that matter in your view? I mean, since it's not a common law duty, it's one that arises only with these statutory steps. But he did take the steps by signing the documents that promised to the state that he would build this in accordance with the plans and he would personally undertake all maintenance obligations of the system, which the stormwater engineer testified. I'll pull up her exact quote. She testified, the operation and maintenance plan required by the North Carolina stormwater rules for all permitted stormwater systems is intended to include all components of the permitted system which would include maintenance of the bypass pipe which was proposed to be added to the title home system. So she's saying, you've got an operation and maintenance duty. It's everything in your system. It includes this thing you're adding. Even if you never got permission to add it, you still have a duty to do that. The fact is, these people are asking you to reward them for breaking the law. Because we didn't get permission, we didn't get stuck with that old nasty obligation the state had on us. If we are a court in a state where the rule of law, where law and order matter, we cannot reward violation of the law. What example does that set for everyone else? This is something, Your Honor, that could generations from now deprive that family who loses a loved one, a small child in a sinkhole from any right to seek uh, compensation from a party who took an express obligation with the state as part of the permission to build one of these stormwater systems. There is great and lasting impacts that will come if you sanction or approve a violation of the law to protect someone violating it. Um, I, I also want to just touch, I have a couple seconds on the punitive damages issue. They were well aware of the obligations. They signed an express agreement to do so. They knew they had to do that. This isn't like something that, that he wasn't aware of, uh, Mr. Clark. They knew there was a history of severe flooding before this bypass pipe. They knew that the bypass pipe was installed to address that flooding, and they all testified. Everyone asked, said maintenance was critical to prevent the failure of those improvements, that bypass pipe, and they never lifted a finger. The guy who certified to the state he would ensure it was built as proposed and would ensure the maintenance obligations testified he never once stepped foot on the site, never once went out there, never once sent anybody to take care of it, and it never was. And 11 North Carolinian citizens had four feet of water in their homes because these people broke the law and because he didn't do what he was obligated to do, what he knew he was obligated to do, and what he knew if he didn't do was likely to result in harm to these people. Thank you. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the FOE. Good morning, Your Honors. Jeff Stoddard, along with Attorney Mark Hamlet, for all of the defendants in this case, which we have been collectively referring to as Bill Clark Holmes. Uh, I'd like to start by mentioning something the Appellants Council just referenced, which is about whether there are any cases citing the circumstances and facts we have in this case. And he is absolutely right. There is not one case in North Carolina law 
that either of us have been able to cite showing a duty of care owed under these circumstances. And that's really what this case is about, whether a duty of care will exist in perpetuity because of actions that happened at some point between 1995 and 2003. <clears throat> we talked a, at a great deal about the state stormwater regulations that are at issue in this case, and, and I'd like to actually begin by starting with that Cowan case. The actual quote from the Cowan case is this, where a statute or municipal ordinance imposes upon any person a specific duty for the protection or benefit of others, if he neglects to perform that duty, he is liable to those for whose protection or benefit it was imposed. For any injuries or damages of the character which the statute or ordinance was designed to prevent. These regulations, as crazy as it may seem, are simply not about protecting flooding they are, or remedying flooding. They are about dealing with the stormwater pollutants that occur in the first 1 to 1.5 inches of a storm. The appellants, and excuse me, I'm probably going to say plaintiffs because we've been living this case for years and it, it's sort of ingrained in my head at this point, but the appellants obtained an affidavit from Linda Lewis. She was the state stormwater guru who was in charge of administering this program, excuse me, in charge of dealing with the concerns in Title Home Village, and her affidavit to plaintiff's counsel makes clear that there is no authority for flooding and that these are about 1 to 1.5 inches of rain because that's where the pollutants are. The statute that uh, sets forth or allows these regulations to be promulgated is very crucial to the understanding of this case. The statute is printed in its entirety in the appendix, appendix page 6, and you can read this, or excuse me, I'll, I'll read it to you. I won't be directing you guys to take any actions here. I'm only going to read brief parts of it because it's a statute, as you can imagine. It is hereby declared to be the public policy of this state to provide for the conservation of its water and air resources. It is the public policy of the state to maintain, protect, and enhance water quality within North Carolina. It is necessary to administer a complete program of water and air conservation, pollution abatement. That's what this statutory and regulatory scheme is really about. So I understand the argument from your friend to be that um, there's no dispute that that is the intent of these you know, regulatory provisions, <clears throat> but that the, the, the idea is there was a duty then. And if there was a breach, they've established the proximate causation because had that breach not occurred, you wouldn't have had the stormwater flooding issues. Now maybe that that's not the, you know, the, the maintenance obligations are for something else other than preventing that damage. But nevertheless, the breach of the duty proximately caused that damage. So what's your response to that? The, I, I think my first response to that question, Your Honor, is that we are really not here on the issue of proximate cause. The issues involved in this case that are before the court are duty, statute of repose, and whether there was any evidence of uh, willful or wanton conduct to toll that statute of repose. The, the breach issues, I think, would be a, a factual issue if a duty was ever found, uh, and that would be a battle of the experts type of situation. What amount of water flows through what size of pipe based on rain intensity data? I think what the focus of this argument, and certainly the focus of my brief, is the issue of duty of care. But, so, but the question I was getting at is, so do you, um, do you reject your, your friend's argument that there, at a minimum there must be a duty to undertake the maintenance in order to prevent the pollution concerns that are in the statute? The, 
That's a very good question, Your Honor. Um, as I, I ruminate on the, on the details of that, the issue with the duty in the 1 to 1.5 inches of rain is that that's not what occurred in this case. Um, if the people of Title Home Village had had repeated 1 to 1.5 inches of flooding over the course of 10 to 15 years and some children developed mold problems, that would be the type of harm that the statute was designed to prevent. If dogs and people had been injured by pollution that had remained on the roadways or in their grass, that would be the type of harm the statute was designed to prevent. And the reason the, it's... The, the arguments you just gave would be either breach or causation, not duty. And what I'm trying to figure out is if the court, if the trial court is saying there's no duty here, did it reject, and I'm not saying that, that the court was wrong to do so, but did it reject the idea that the DEQ regulations can ever impose a, a duty that sounds in tort, um, you know, on residents of our state? That, that's the question I'm getting. Or do you think there is a duty here, it's just not one that's applicable in these facts? I, th I think that's, that's sort of what I was trying to get at, and I, perhaps you've said it more eloquently than I have, which is that the duty created by these statutes is, is to protect against flooding. Um, and the reason that's so is because those pollutants are in the 1 to 1.5 inches of, of rainwater. These state statutes have to cover everywhere from Asheville down to Charlotte down to Wilmington, and they get dramatically different rainstorms, dramatically different building concerns. And what might work in one of those places doesn't work in the other, which is exactly why the state says we're only dealing with water quality and we defer to the local governments to deal with water quantity issues because what Wilmington needs might be dramatically different than Asheville. And that's a, a transition to exactly what all of the witnesses and all of the ordinance in this case say, which is that all the duties, as you pointed out earlier, Your Honor, rest with the property owner. Uh, every analogous. Are you aware of any environmental of any appellate decisions in our state that found environmental regulations to have imposed a tort duty on, you know, businesses or landowners or anybody else? Or can you point the, to some? The the short answer of that is I cannot, Your Honor. I could not find a case basically asserting what plaintiffs uh, appellants counsel would have this court decide this would be a brand new duty of care a brand new extension of the stormwater statute um, the, the statute does briefly reference human health uh, and property and in the course of reading the entire statute it's clear that that applies to the pollution abatement if the court decides that 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 the language human health and property damage is so broad then it this type of statute could be used in virtually every single case ever. Almost every statute is going to be enacted to some degree because it impacts either human health or, or property. Well, that was going to be my next question to you. It's just if we concluded that this environmental regulation can do that, what would there be some, can you think of some constraining principle that would, that would prevent our precedent from transforming all environmental regulations into these types of duties? I mean, is there anything in your view special about the regulation that your friend is relying on here to create this duty? It, it, that's, the, that's the danger of this case. That's the danger of imposing a brand new duty of law that does not yet exist. This, this court, this panel will have a difficult time outlining exactly where that terminates and where it doesn't. Uh, I would encourage the court to look at the terms of the statute itself, the regulations that were in effect at the time of Florence, and they all say 
that this is about water quality, not water quantity. And that's where the interpretation of the regulations and their applicability should, should be limited to by the plain term, by the plain language of the statute and the ordinance themselves. So I want to talk about going, moving to the ownership of the property. Um, and, and our law generally says that the owner is responsible for the maintenance. Or if there were an, an actual easement, that the easement um, owner um, would be responsible, at least for the maintenance for their use, correct? Correct. But in this case, the allegation is that there is no easement and that the owner had no idea that this was there. So does that mean that there's no duty by anyone to maintain? The, the duty to maintain rests in this case with Armstrong developers. Why? If they didn't know that this pipe was there, how can you impose a duty upon someone to maintain something they don't know is there? Uh, attorney, uh, excuse me, attorney, uh, professional engineer Philip Tripp was the engine, the stormwater engineer. He's based in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's been there for 30, 35 years. He was doing the stormwater engineering for the neighboring development Kirkwood at Arendale. And he testified that this, uh, that he, when he was asked, excuse me, let me try and organize that because I don't have the deposition testimony right in front of me, but it is in the supplement. <laughs> he was asked about this very question, and what he said was, this would have been a massive construction uh, undertaking that you would not be able to hide. Yeah, but isn't that a question of fact? I mean, aren't we here, uh, if we're viewing the light, the facts, the light most favorable to the other side, that's a question of fact. And, and if, if, in fact, if we're looking at the duty of law, right, and they did not know it was there, then who is responsible for it? So, Your, Your Honor, you raised two questions, and one transitions to the second part of this argument, which is the statute of repose. And, and I don't want to ignore your question on duty, but I think that the statute of repose issue guides our answer to that question. The first 17 pages of the appellant's brief talks about facts that happened in 1995 to 2003. In the year 2000, engineer Jay Ward Andrews was employed by Bill Clark Holmes, or contracted with by Bill Clark Holmes, to design this pipe. As appellant's counsel noted, he called for the pipe to terminate at the title home village boundaries. Then nothing happened for three years. Three years later, Philip Tripp, on behalf of the neighboring development, Kirkwood and Arendale, which Bill Clark Holmes had no involvement with, they, to satisfy concern with the DOT, also submitted plans for a pipe and a weir box in this same location. Attorney Tripp's design called for that pipe to go a couple hundred feet into that ravine. It was built 30 feet into that ravine, so some number like that. Mr. Tripp, on behalf of Kirkwood and Arendale, wrote letters to the property owners saying, as part of an agreement between Kirkwood and Arendale and the Department of Transportation, we will be placing a pipe in your property. Mr. Tripp testified at his deposition in this case. Not at, he did not know why J. Ward Andrews' plan was not implemented, but nothing happened until we put the pipe in in 2003. Mr. Andrews died in 2009 or 10. Uh, John Connor was the um, the Title Home Village construction supervisor. He has also passed away. If this case had been brought within the six-year statute of repose, Bill Clark Holmes would be able to answer these questions. They'd be able to answer what happened with the permission and Armstrong developers. They would be able to answer who exactly put the pipe in, who put boots on the ground. The, um, the record from the prior hearing contains a statement about the, this very issue. Uh, and appellant's counsel stated, we have never contended that Bill Clark was out there with a shovel. We have never contended that they were the sole people doing this project. 
And that's what makes it so hard for Bill Clark Holmes to defend itself in this case and the reason the statute of repose exists. The, we have lost witnesses. We have faded memories. Mr. Tripp could not recall exactly what had happened in terms of meetings during Right, the so I just, sorry to interrupt you. No, please. So a hypothetical, this is brought within the statute of repose and the allegation is that it was surreptitiously without the um, knowledge of the property owner, Bill Clark Holmes installed this pipe and property owner didn't know it, they didn't have an easement. Who's responsible for maintaining the pipe at that point? The, um, the, the witness testimony in particular, Mr. Tripps again guides this and he said that the, typically the pipe would be maintained uh, by all parties benefiting from the installation. So if this pipe had flooded in that time, theoretically that maintenance obligation would be some, some combination of the people who placed the pipe whether Bill Clark Holmes, Kirkwood at Arendale, Armstrong developers who would have existed, they dissolved in 2010, so if this case had been brought by 2009, they would have been in existence. Uh, the HOAs themselves, uh, and then potentially whoever else benefited from the placement of this pipe. And the key with the statute of repose is that all those parties would be able to summon the necessary witnesses and evidence to, to actually outline who might or should be responsible for the placement of that pipe. So, so where does that legal duty come from? If you're then saying it, it belongs to all of these people, not just the party who installed the pipe illegally, surreptitiously, where does that duty come from? That, that duty of care uh, would arise by the, the broad common law duty of care that when you act, you have a duty to act reasonably, that, that sort of black letter law torts 101 statement, it would arise from that. And that's what is so important about the statute of repose is that the statute of repose outlines the, the terminus of that liability. And the argument here today to permit a duty of care to exist under these circumstances is one that would exist in perpetuity in violation of the statute of repose. There's uh, some case law out there that says that um, only the legislature can create exceptions to the statute of repose, not the courts. And I say that with the utmost deference to the courts, but ultimately what, what the statute of repose requires is that these cases be brought within six years of the last act or omission, which in that case would have been the placement of the pipe in 2003. Wouldn't it be an ongoing maintenance duty that, that that's sort of an ongoing statute of repose movement there. Your Honor, the appellant has very artfully crafted and styled this case as that. And the defendants would submit that to create an ongoing duty of repair would eviscerate the statute of repose. The statute of repose was enacted for the purpose of incentivizing growth and development in North Carolina. And if builders, uh, if builders lobbied the legislature, the legislature decided to enact it, that would undercut the purpose of this if every action could be styled as a failure to repair as opposed to a, an initial negligent action. When the pipe was placed in 2003 without a maintenance plan by whoever placed it, that was when the negligent action allegedly occurred, or I should say the allegedly negligent action occurred. To allow that to continue in perpetuity would mean that Bill Clark Holmes, great, 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 great grandchildren, whoever inherits this business, could be liable in perpetuity. And the danger of that is? That the legislature enacted the statute of repose to limit the liability of those in the construction field. Uh, and they did that to incentivize the growth and development in North Carolina. The, 
uh, the, some of the issues that have sort of intertwined with the, the answers I've hopefully given you to your questions that are hopefully satisfactory is that all of that would be still a brand new duty of care. We have scoured the case law and have found all of these analogous principles of law that all suggest, as Judge Dietz commented, that the, the original outline frame of reference of the duty of care is that it is owed by the landowner. This has existed since 1919 in a lamb versus lamb case. It exists in private nuisance law. It exists in public nuisance law, both at the statutory level, at the, excuse me, the ordinance level, the New Hanover County ordinances call for it. Um, stormwater and New Hanover County stormwater engineer uh, Jeremiah May specifically testified in this case that it might sound crazy, but he writes letters saying you have to maintain it to the property owner. And that's where the duty of care arises. Do, do any of our cases talk about things that happen on property um, that the property owner wasn't aware of? I mean, I know all of the cases that we've talked about, property owner knows it's, it's the property owner, right? And knows what's going on and, and, and has the duty to maintain it. But do you have any cases where that's, where we have facts similar to this? I, I do not, Your Honor. Uh, you know, as, as I just mentioned, we had to scour back case law to 1919 to find analogous principles of law because neither appellant's counsel nor myself has been able to find a case that dictates your outcome today. One, I'm sorry. One question I have about that is, is, it, is that a duty or a breach question, the fact that the landowner might not know about it? Because I could see an argument that the duty still rests with the landowner, but if in the exercise of ordinary care, the landowner would not have known about, for example, a pipe being on their property because it was installed without their knowledge, then they could say we didn't, we acted like an ordinary prudent person under the circumstances. I think but that's a fantastic. Still would have a duty. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, Your Honor. Uh, that's a fascinating question. And in our brief, we've cited the Lampkin case, which is a 2012 Court of Appeals case. And it says that the landowner has a duty to exercise reasonable care in the maintenance of its premises. So it would be up to a jury to decide whether Armstrong developers used or ordinary care, reasonable <coughs> care in its ownership and maintenance or lack thereof of its property. When Armstrong developers sold, uh, there's two neighboring um, subdivisions. So the title home village where I'm standing and then the uh, creek runs towards you, Judge Deeds. There's a subdivision called Riverbend and there's a subdivision called Traley Place. Armstrong developers sold, owned all that land. They sold all that land off except for that creek in the middle that we've been discussing here today. That did not fall through the cracks with anyone associated with Bill Clark Homes. Bill Clark Homes did not own that property. They never owned that property. All of it is about whether Armstrong developers reasonably sold it, reasonably had it surveyed on their own part, reasonably walked it to see whether they were selling the right part, what due diligence they did when they, saw, when they signed that property over. Those are all issues that I completely agree relate to the issue of breach on Armstrong developers. There's, there's this notion that Armstrong developers dissolved in 2010 and therefore they can't be liable. Well, the Bill Clark's home entity that signed the stormwater permit also dissolved. And there's sort of an interesting juxtaposition that would have to be decided to determine that Armstrong developers can't be liable for it as a dissolved corporation, but, and, and forgive me, there's a few different Bill Clark home entities there. Whichever one signed the permit is also no longer dissolved and is still liable on the hook for it. 
And this all, I mean, I'm, I know I'm beating a dead horse with this, but this all reverts to back to the statute of repose issue, which is if this had all been raised back in 2009-ish, um, we would have firm answers to these questions. When was, um, when was the, when did Bill Clark sign that um, piece of paper saying that it would maintain the pipe in 2009? No. Uh, I'm sure Appellant's Council has the date handy, but it's probably about 2000 at the time they were proposing this weir box and pipe. It would have been around, two, I don't know if it's 2000, 2001, it's in that time frame. It is not at any point in the 2009 to present time frame. And, and there's another important point here too, which is that this is not so unequally burdensome that the duty of care has to shift back to Bill Clark Holmes. The homeowners association of which the plaintiffs were a part of was conducting uh, stormwater maintenance of its pond uh, and there was another feature there that it was maintaining. And while it may not have known about this pipe, it had the ability to maintain it. And whether the, the HOA should have been made aware of that pipe, again, would have been an issue that occurred in 2000 to 2003 that would have involved all of the parties we've been discussing. The other issue with this is that the reason this stormwater permit retained with Bill Clark Homes and not with the HOAs is because there's two HOAs. Uh, one was Title Home and one is Title Home Village. One of the presidents failed to sign the transfer form and then it just got lost with the state regulations. And for, for that to happen, that again did not fall through the cracks with anyone at Bill Clark Homes. That fell through the cracks between the HOAs and the state stormwater regulation. So to allow a duty of care to exist under these stormwater regulations, which are about controlling pollutants and protecting surface waters, under these facts, it again just go, goes back to this statute of repose issue. Um, the one of the issues raised by plaintiffs' reply brief was that the statute of repose was not actually in the motion for summary judgment. And I wanted to address that briefly just so that your honors know it's properly before the court. The uh, defendants at the motion for summary judgment stage submitted a comprehensive memorandum of law and it cited the phrase statute of repose 34 times. In the uh, transcript, I counted it the other night, the statute of repose is referenced 12 times. This issue was litigated extensively below. Uh, the plaintiff's appellants were aware of it prior to the hearing. They had a full opportunity to argue it, and the defendants would submit that the issue of the statute of repose is, is properly before the court. The only way the defendants can toll the statute of repose is two sections in the statute itself. And the first is the statute of repose cannot be asserted by someone in actual possession or control of the land which goes back to the arguments I've been making before you for the last 20, 25 minutes. The legislature clearly understands and has taken into account the purpose of ownership and control of the land. And the only other way to toll the statute of repose is for the plaintiff's appellants to prove fraud or willful or wanton conduct. And I won't read the whole language of what willful and wanton conduct is, but we're all familiar with it. It requires this heightened standard of deliberate misconduct, deliberate violations of the law, and the plaintiff's appellants have just failed to set forth facts that actually support that. Um, the fact that they were aware of flooding and aware that a pipe existed does not mean that they placed the pipe, does not mean that they deliberately placed the pipe in violation of the law, 
in fact, the state was saying that whether it was the DOT or the, um, the Stormwater Department of Environmental Quality, they were saying this pipe needed to be placed. That pipe was not placed in deliberate violation of the law. I have, I have just two questions. Number one, would the HOA's duty to maintain that pipe extend to the pipe that's not on the property? F fascinating question, Your Honor. The, uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I think that the, the, the issue with that is that it would really depend on what they were told and when they were told and who they were told. And one of the reasons that Bill Clark Homes cannot summon the evidence to show that a maintenance plan was discussed or that became part of their stormwater permit is because of this confusion in 2000 to 2003 in which it became clear that Kirkwood and Arendale is the one that actually placed the pipe. So if Kirkwood and Arendale placed the pipe, they would have no obligation to tell the HOA that they placed the pipe because they did it for the DOT and maybe they told their own subdivision. I, and that's why I can't answer your question. Okay. My, my other question is we're talking about willful and wanton and, and you said there's, I mean, it, it, is, it, is it a question of fact whether Bill Clark placed the pipe? So the, that is a very interesting question. The answer to the complaint in this case admitted that uh, Bill Clark Holmes installed or caused to be installed the pipe. Okay. Uh, we moved to reconsider that answer in light of a uh, Mr. Tripp's testimony that we installed the pipe for Kirkwood and Arendale. That motion was denied and that is not on appeal. So the placement of the pipe is not, I'm reiterating these facts about Kirkwood and Arendale, not to show that Bill Clark Holmes didn't benefit from the pipe being placed or didn't need the pipe being placed to satisfy the state stormwater regulations, but that whether they committed some malevolent misconduct deliberately in violation of the law is guided by the fact that we'll never know who what really happened during that time. The only testimony, the only actual evidence is Mr. Tripp saying we placed the pipe on behalf of Kirkwood and Arendale. So we are stuck with the admission that we caused the pipe to be installed, but as plaintiff's counsel noted in the transcript that's contained in our appendix, they have never contended that Bill Clark Holmes put shovel to ground. Okay. So if they caused the pipe to be installed and Bill Clark Holmes knew that it was different than what they had proposed, correct? They proposed that the pipe would end at the property. I mean, just taking all these allegations in the light most favorable, right? It in the light most favorable, that is correct, Your Honor. And but they and they knew that they had, if they had installed it correctly, they would have a maintenance plan that they would have to deal with, correct? Yes, okay. for the purpose of preventing pollutants. Okay, but but still, they had a maintenance plan. So the so your it's your contention that the maintenance plan was solely for the pollutants and that there was no other reason for it. The the reason that's important is because that would guide what the maintenance plan required. If this pipe was still able to move the first inch to an inch and a half of rain, given that it's a 36 inch diameter pipe, then the state stormwater system would have still been satisfied. And that's why it's so important for that, it's so important for it to be limited that a statute can only set the duty of care when that's the type of harm the statute is designed to prevent. While we're talking about this willful or wanton case, the uh, appellant's brief cites four cases that, that I think are tremendously helpful for guiding this punitive damage issue. They cite the Cockerham Ellerby case, which punitive damages were upheld, and the facts of that case are horrific. It is a domestic violence case 
in which um, mother breaks up with father, they have a daughter, father keeps threatening to kill the mother, the mother keeps calling the police, calls them repeatedly. The police repeatedly reassure her, don't worry about it, you're safe tonight, we're going to get him right now. They never go get him and he strangles the daughter. Punitive damages are allowed in that fact pattern. Hart versus Bienza, also cited in the appellant's brief. Punitive damage is allowed where the police officer shot an unarmed man while he was trying to escape a window. And the officer then held an assault rifle to the, uh, I guess, I don't even know that he was a criminal, suspect's head. And he said, and I have to quote, I have to bleep myself out here before the Court of Appeals, I can't believe you're not mother effing dead while pushing that assault rifle into that man's head. Just because you've got facts that go up here for punitive damages doesn't mean that the line isn't somewhere here, correct? The plaintiff's brief cites another case that's helpful for setting, setting that um, similar line, and it was the George versus Greyhound case. And it was a driver fell asleep. It appeared the driver had fallen asleep, and three different passengers shouted, look out, look out, look out, and the, he did not look out, and he drove straight through a camper in front of the people. And the court there says that uh, punitive damages were uh, not allowed. The Court of Appeals said summary judgment on punitives was appropriate there, where there were four specific warnings. If we had a case here where for 15 years, between 2003 and 2018 during that storm, someone had sent a letter every other week to Bill Clark Holmes saying, we need you to get out here, we need you to get out here, we're having flooding, this might be a different case. But there was radio silence for 15 years. All of the witnesses have been lost and for those reasons, we submit that there's no duty of care owed here. Even if a duty of care can be found, it is barred by the statute of repose. And unless your honors have any further questions, I'd be happy to rest on my brief. I appreciate the opportunity to make this presentation, and I would ask it that you affirm the trial court's orders. Thank you. All right. Thank you, counsel. Any rebuttal? We have four minutes left. First of all, this is not an obligation that goes into perpetuity as they continue to argue. The obligation to maintain only exists as long as you hold the stormwater permit. So you transfer it. Every developer transfers the stormwater permit as fast as possible to the HOA so they can get away from the liability. For some unknown reason, Bill Clark didn't do it for years, decades. Why? Because they didn't follow the law to be able to do that because they never incorporated built upon area limits in their deeds that they were required to do by their permit with the state telling them you have to go fix this issue you're selling property without what you agreed you put in the deeds and these people can build out their entire lot so you got to build a bigger pond or you got to go get them to sign a new deed restriction what does bill clark do nothing he gave the equivalent of the middle finger to the state and just moseyed on didn't do anything <clears throat> the quote um from Cowan that, that he keeps referencing in terms of a statute has to be directed towards the, the purpose in order to find civil liability. That is dicta. That is, we call that dicta. That's what I was taught in law school. That has nothing to do with the holding in that case. It is absolutely irrelevant to that case and they cannot cite you any case where this was actually used to escape liability. Maintenance of the system is not just about pollutants. It's about keeping the system from failing when everyone knows if the system fails the people flood you can't take mother nature and reroute rivers and streams and man takes on this incredible hubris that we can control mother nature and not understand that if you don't 
take reasonable steps to ensure it functions properly, calamity might happen. These are engineers. The testimony from John Oglesby, the engineering expert we hired, was like, listen, when you're building stuff like a stormwater system, you're not just thinking about the one and a half inches of runoff. You're thinking about things collapsing, people dying, floods happening. That is part of all of the analysis. To look at this in the vacuum of, well, the statute's about pollutants, ignores the reality that our state is always concerned with public safety. And part of the reason our state has engineers that look over the shoulder of these permit applicants is to make sure they're not building a system that's going to hurt someone. That's why we have maintenance obligations. He talked about mold problems. I can assure you there was mold in these houses that had four feet of water in them. So if that's enough, if they concede that's enough to attach liability, we got it. We satisfied it. It's in the record. We put that evidence on. There was a benefit not to the property owner where this pipe terminated. This dissolved corporation got nothing out of this deal. Who benefited? Bill Clark Holmes, the person who was under the threat of a notice of violation from the state. They had a letter that said, fix this problem or else we're suspending your right to issue certificates of occupancy. So this whole thing, the reality is it was about flooding from the beginning. Everything else is misdirection, ladies and gentlemen. This was all about flooding. The state stepped in and said, you're causing flooding, your system's insufficient, do something to address it or else we're taking away your right to issue certificates of occupancy. So Bill Clark steps up to the plate, their engineer proposes the plans, and they admit in their answer that they caused the pipe not just to be installed, they admitted that they're the ones who had it go 30 feet beyond the border. That was the answer. They can't deflect from that now and attempt to say, oh, well, another witness uh, engineer who wasn't really involved in our project from 15 years ago had a hazy recollection. By the way, Philip Tripp did admit that um, there was involvement of J. Ward Andrews and um, the defendants, and my time has run out. Thank you. Right. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both. We appreciate your arguments, and we'll adjourn. Mr. Clerk? All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned.